It's a city block from Orchard Knob Middle School in Chattanooga, Tennessee, to the Hamilton County Juvenile Court and Detention Center. So literally the guards would just handcuff us and walk us across the street. It's a five-minute walk that Tristan Slow became more and more familiar with. I got along pretty well with some people, but I had like serious beef with some people. And so the police officers at the center got to know him. The cops or whoever it is that is involved in these things were aware that I was having issues with like gangs and stuff and were aware that I was consistently getting in trouble. Um, It was mostly for violence. I wasn't like robbing or dealing drugs or anything. But, like, that doesn't really matter, you know? They just see you in handcuffs, and that's all that matters is, like, you keep getting arrested. 800 miles away in Omaha, Nebraska, Nadal Al-Kazahi ran away from her group foster home for two weeks. When she went back, cops greeted her. I was terrified. I was like, all I wanted was food. All I wanted was just come back and eat and shower and choose for clothes. Um, My heart dropped. When I saw the cops come to the door, I was confused. I was like, there's no way this is real. No way. Um, there can't be a warrant out for a 14-year-old girl who literally just ran away and also turned herself in. I've never done drugs. I have never um, been arrested for anything else. Nothing. Literally nothing. I ran away because I was a sad, depressed kid for two weeks. They drove me to GCYC, which is Douglas County Youth Center. Fingerprinted me. That was awful. Just having, just them putting the ink on my fingers and then doing that. I was just like, I'm not a criminal. These moments in Nadal's and Tristan's lives, their arrest, their first step into the juvenile justice system, were moments that would kickstart years of being in and out of foster homes and detention facilities. But they were inevitable moments, made so by systems much larger than their middle school selves. The school to prison pipeline pushes kids out of school. We need to have a transformation. Putting me in a jumpsuit. Police in no counter. You're locked up without bars. That's our job. Like, that's what we are here for. In this episode, we're talking about everything that happens before the moment of arrest. We're talking about the law enforcement practices that push kids out of the systems that are meant to be trusted, child welfare in school, and into juvenile detention centers around the country. We're talking about entering the system. I'm Katie Seifer, and this is Kids Imprisoned. Prison for kids. Gangs of kids. She is mad. A lot of them kids never saw I still have nightmares about like being sent back there. I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't know any better. Some of those kids get locked up. So I'm here with Patrick Linehan, a News 21 reporter who has been covering the different ways kids enter the juvenile justice system. Hey, Patrick. Hi, Katie. So, what have you and the other News 21 reporters you've been working with found out about how kids enter the juvenile justice system? We normally think about kids being arrested on a street corner mm-hmm. or being you know, put in the back of a police car for doing something um, on the street. But what we've found is that a lot of kids actually enter the juvenile justice system through other ways, through systems that we normally trust. Mm-hmm. It's like school and the child welfare system. Wow. So if we think about you know, the juvenile justice system doesn't start at the moment of arrest. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've really, we found that we, we should be expanding our definition 
And really, we're, we're punishing and disciplining kids for behavior long before they ever get involved in the juvenile justice system. We're doing that in the school system, in the child welfare system, long before they're arrested. Wow. These systems could inadvertently lead to their participation or interaction with the juvenile justice system. So that plays out uh, kind of on the ground as the criminalization of behavior that is normal teenage behavior. So in school, oftentimes we hear of kids getting arrested or suspended or expelled at school uh, because of doing something like, I don't know, talking back to a teacher or kicking over a trash can um, or getting into a fight over a, a middle school or a high school girlfriend. So what, what factors are at play here? How do kids get pushed into the juvenile system? We find that Black students are 3.5 times more likely to be suspended from school than their white counterparts. Wow. Uh, and we know that that's not because Black kids misbehave more at school. Um, experts, including nationally representative and, and government entities and nonpartisan government entities, have, have all concluded that it's because of bias in the way that teachers and administrators are disciplining children in schools. So it seems like that bias has plays a huge role in pushing certain kids towards the juvenile justice system. Are there any other factors that these kids have to contend with that might increase their level of involvement with the system? Yeah, so uh, trauma is one that we we talk about a lot as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for that, we should go back in Tristan's life. We started at his arrest, but I think it's important to rewind and understand the context in which he was arrested. So here's Tristan. I was sexually abused and I never told anybody like. I don't know that they told me this, but like I just assumed I would get in trouble if I said something. And it was pretty. uh, Like violent in the sense like they it hurt. I kind of like, I guess over time, like I never told anybody. And it's funny because, well, it's not funny, but it's crazy because like, I talked to my mom about it and she remembers like my behavior changing, but she didn't know why. And here is Nadal in Nebraska. So my parents came here as Iraqi refugees. It was me and my five siblings at the time. My dad owned a small business and we had some income. And, but I guess in the eyes of the state, it wasn't enough. So somebody made an anonymous phone call saying that there was abuse and neglect in the home. Um, There wasn't. um, None of my siblings were ever abused. We were never neglected. And we were taken away and put in foster care. The six kids were all split, three and three, between two foster homes. Over the years, they moved around to different places, more than 20 homes for Nadal. But they all managed to stay in touch. Weeks before she ran away, tragedy struck. When I was um, 14, my oldest brother um, was murdered. He was 19 and my second oldest brother was there. He was 18 at the time to witness all of it. Um, Obviously, I couldn't handle it very well. And my foster mom sent me to a group home. And um, two weeks after his death, I went downhill during that time. I never did like anything super bad, I would say, but I was a runaway. I did put myself in some high-risk situations. Um, I'm grateful that I 
didn't get into too much harm's way. I did run away for two weeks and um, I turned myself in and went back to my group home. So Nadal shows back up at this group home and she's met with officers standing at the door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it seems like both Nadal and Tristan experience things that no person or child should ever have to experience in their lifetimes. And it, it seems to me that perhaps, you know, a lot of the reasons for the behavior might be because of these experiences that they went through. Exactly. And, and trauma is a huge contributor to to behavior that that might not be exactly what is expected of kids. And and we know that from talking to many experts and school psychologists and child psychologists. And they said a child's first experience with violence is almost never as the perpetrator. The kids whose trauma histories, anxiety, depression, emotional, um, you know, difficulties that they're struggling with, emotional needs, um, that manifests as more externalizing behaviors, right? They're acting out, they're um, oppositional, they're not following directions. That's Angela Mann, a school psychologist and associate professor at the University of North Florida. We know that, you know, even, especially for young kids, we really should only expect them to follow directions 70% of the time. So they're not always going to be following your instructions. That's part of like brain development. Um, and so really probably doesn't have a lot to do with the kids and more has to do with us as adults in the building, our perceptions, and maybe our, our lack of skills for dealing with kind of just normative child behavior. And once that quote-unquote bad behavior is identified, a lot of students are punished instead of rehabilitated. Exclusionary discipline, which includes expulsions and suspensions from school, are widely criticized. You know, kids are, you know, quote, acting out or perceived as acting out um, because there is an unmet need and exclusionary discipline doesn't do anything to meet that need. That, again, is Angela Mann. It just pushes kids out of school. But when the kids return to school, that need is still there and the school um, hasn't really done anything to address the need. Often there's also a, um, a skill that the teacher is needing to address that student's needs, um, that's also missing, right? And that teacher's, like, gap in being able to address their need also hasn't been met by the exclusionary discipline. So it seems like they're used to try and solve kids' behavioral problems, but they're really just kind of like Band-Aids. They're not really fixing the problems underneath that these kids really need to have addressed. Exactly. I mean, experts are, are questioning that system. You know, what is helped or who is who is helped by kicking kids out of schools? But three million suspensions were handed to students um, during the 2015-16 school year. Wow. Um, and that's the most recent year by the Department of Education. 11 million days uh, lost uh, for students. And, and those are disproportionately students of color, disproportionately students with disabilities. So those kids who are who are receiving that punishment in school also disproportionately make up the juvenile and adult justice systems. So we can see a kind of a direct connection between some of the punishment against behavior in schools and the punishment that those kids receive from the juvenile and adult justice systems. You know, as an adult, what happened to you when you were in middle school or high school had a direct 
effect on your life and a direct effect on your involvement in the adult criminal justice system. Right. And and over time, I mean, some people have said, well, you know, of course, the kids who are going to get in trouble in school will also get in trouble outside of school. Um, but a study that was conducted in 2017 found that the suspensions were the deciding factor um, in, in outcomes 12 years down the line. So they had 1,500 students that were matched in every way, except then some of them were suspended and others weren't. The students who received a suspension were more likely to be arrested 12 years down the line. So basically what this study is saying is that it's the suspension, not the other factors, that is increasing a kid's chances to be involved with the adult criminal justice system in the long term. Wow, that is so interesting because, I mean, suspensions are supposed to be, like we were saying earlier, the solution to a problem. I did want to ask, um, this is like change of subject, but earlier you mentioned the child welfare system. And I'm wondering how this pattern that you've seen between the school to prison pipeline, I wonder, I'm wondering how that relates to the child welfare system. Yeah, Katie. So we know that the juvenile justice system and the child welfare systems are very interconnected. To talk more about that, I want to bring in Chloe Jones. Uh, She's a reporter who has been focusing on the intersections between the child welfare system and the juvenile justice system. So, Chloe, could you tell me a little bit more about how kids who are involved with the child welfare system are treated when they misbehave? Yeah, we talked to Jennifer Rodriguez. She's the executive director of the Youth Law Center, a nonprofit in San Francisco that does a lot of advocacy work in this area for kids across the country. Sort of their normal experience in in being a child and particularly in being a teenager um, is viewed as like sort of under a microscope and that normal childhood behaviors end up being seen in a totally abnormal light uh, when you're in the system. So when you look at the data for what youth and foster care actually get pushed into juvenile justice for, um, the vast majority are placement-related issues uh, that are nonviolent whether it's with a group home or a foster family, um, a lot of times just normal behaviors get punished and they're received a lot harsher for different reasons. So for example, you know, I spent a majority of my childhood in these facilities. She's talking about group homes. And so that's where foster kids go when they aren't matched with a foster family. It's like a mistake to even have the name home in them because they don't feel anything like a home, they feel they feel like you're locked up without bars. I remember one of the times that I got arrested and taken to juvenile hall, it was for getting mad at a staff person. I had a glass of water in my hand and I tossed the water, not the glass, but the water in the cup in the staff. And I was immediately, I was arrested for assault and taken to juvenile hall. So that is not likely the type of thing that, that a parent would be allowed to call the police on their child for. And so that's why we see kind of an overrepresentation or like a such a connection, I guess, between these two systems. So I'm wondering, is this something kind of experts and advocates are also telling you that kind of happens kind of on a larger scale? Yeah. So this criminalizing normal behaviors is like a very um, it's a very well-known thing. Experts said like, yes, obviously, that's what happens. About 60 percent of kids in the juvenile justice system have some kind of child welfare background. Wow, 60%. So 
So uh, it's very clear, Chloe, that, that kids involved in the juvenile welfare system are interacting more with law enforcement and they're, they're being policed at a higher rate and therefore are involved in the juvenile justice system at immensely high rates. And, you know, that's something that we actually see in schools, too. What do you mean by that, Patrick, that kids in the child welfare system and in schools have more interaction with law enforcement? Well, I mean, if we go back to that example we started with, Tristan described walking across the street with a police officer after getting into a fight with some kids at school. It was kind of gang related because I wasn't in a gang and I like actively rejected like gang culture. And that was a big part of that school. It was a largely blood school, but there was, um, you know, there was like some of all gangs that were present in Chattanooga. Some people were like aware of this because I had gotten arrested a few times at school for fighting. So school resource officers are a widespread phenomenon. Um, 70% of high schools had at least a part-time school resource officer during the 2018-19 school year. Uh, And that's according to the School Survey on Crime and Safety, uh, which is from the Department of Education. What is the reasoning behind this? Why are there so many school resource officers in schools? They're originally there to keep kids safe. Uh, The use of SROs exploded after the Columbine shooting. And and every time there's kind of a national high-profile shooting at a school, um, we see a response by the government to hire more. And the Department of Justice really buys into this as well and has handed out hundreds of millions of dollars since Columbine to school districts to hire SROs. They gave out $50 million this year. I mean, how do kids and parents and teachers and school administrators, communities, how do people react to this, having these, these school resource officers? There is a lot of criticism, Katie. Uh, We talked to this one 18-year-old rapper named Christian Wimberly. He goes by the stage name Deshaun. And he uh, just recently released a song about school police. So I I want you to listen to it. Why we need school police? Yeah, I don't get it. They causing the friction. I'm really not with it. We need more counseling nurses. The lunch is not meeting criteria. Why we need school police? Why we need school police? I'll say it again, man. The Los Angeles School Police Department is the largest school police department in the country, according to their website. With more than 545 officers and staff, the department rivals the size of departments in many mid-sized cities. Here's Amir Whitaker, a policy attorney with the ACLU of Southern California. He published many reports and studies about the role of police in schools. When we add police to schools, it's really just putting more buckets there to respond, to catch the water, or that's slipping through the cracks. Because we know students are going to have outbursts. They're going to have moments. We know they're going to have knuckleheads, right? I mean, we had our Bart Simpsons, we had our Punky Brewsters, like the Little Rascals, like... Go back. There's always been adolescents that defy rules and that, you know, you need more patience. And police aren't trained to deal with those adolescents. We want to actually fix that rule. Police, we're we're just adding rolls of buckets to collect the water. Why, yes. Yeah, yeah. Why we need school police? Yeah, I don't get it. They causing the friction. I'm really not with it. We need more counseling nurses. The lunch is not meeting criteria. Why we need school police? Why we need school police? Whitaker was an author of a 2018 ACLU report, Cops No Counselors. Um, and that found that 11 million students go to a school that has a police officer, but is missing either a counselor, psychologist, or nurse. Okay, so real quick, I just want to 
scale back and look at the big picture. Yes. Yeah, this, is, it's a lot. <laughs> this is a lot. So let's talk about what we've been talking about, which is entering the system. So as you and Chloe and other News 21 reporters have found, kids often have these underlying traumatic experiences, potentially disabilities, um, or other challenges in their lives that they are facing just on a daily basis. Exactly. Uh, I mean, Tristan and Nadal shared their story with us. And we know that many kids in the juvenile justice system, up to 70%, um, struggle with mental health issues. Okay. And then we talked about how, you know, when you're dealing with this kind of stuff, it can be hard to, you know, go about your daily life. And potentially that might mean that kids act out in school or act out at home. Yes, exactly. Those behaviors or that underlying trauma or mental health or disability kind of externalizes into behavior um, that might not line up exactly with what schools or the child welfare system want. And then based on what you found, this kind of punitive culture at school in the form of this exclusionary discipline like suspensions and expulsions and arrests means that these kids are forced out of school into the juvenile system. Yeah, I mean, uh, kids don't drop out as much as we think they drop out. That Schools are designed to push them out um, at different rates. And, and that happens, too, at the, the child welfare level, too, when they're being surveilled and their foster parents are calling the police at higher rates. And so they're, they're often pushed out of that system and into the juvenile justice system as well. So to sum it all up, a lot of kids end up going to juvenile detention or getting involved, at least, in the juvenile justice system for behavior that is, one, just normal childhood behavior, talking back, um, maybe being a little disrespectful, being a little rude, um, but for which, two, they might have an understandable reason for behaving that way if you understand their background and their, the challenges they're facing in their daily lives. Yeah, you just you just summed up in, in 10 seconds what I took, you know, 20 minutes to, to explain. <laughs> so my next question for you, it's a big one. Where where do we go from here? How do we stem the flow of the number of kids that are entering the juvenile justice system through these pipelines that you've mentioned? Well, yeah, I think big question is, is a bit of an understatement, Katie. Um, <laughs> it's hard to have, you know, such a silver bullet solution, you know, to such a large problem. Um, but there are experts and advocates who are, who are talking about and implementing solutions. The way the system is organized now, I think it doesn't really help a whole lot of kids. I mean, we, we need to have a transformation across these systems. That's Gladys Carrion, a senior fellow at Columbia University Justice Lab and co-chair of Youth Correctional Leaders for Justice. Formerly, she was both commissioner for the state of New York and commissioner for the city of New York in charge of both the juvenile justice system, the child welfare system, and actually the early learning uh, and care system in both state and city. During her tenure, Carrion closed dozens of facilities in New York State. She also made changes to the treatment of duly involved youth, those who bounce between juvenile justice and child welfare systems. You know, I look at my child welfare system that really is designed to help children and families. And we do so much harm, right, to those families. And it's really hard. It's very hard to dismantle these systems the way they're doing, the way they've been designed. And to work with the families and be able to work with the families that were duly involved and be able to, to provide, you know, to be able to have that alignment between services. Sometimes we have families running around crazy, you know, trying to meet the demands of systems. And when systems don't talk to each other. So she worked to get them talking to each other in New York. 
So we had um, the information from child welfare migrated over juvenile justice, juvenile justice over to child welfare, having a whole picture of what's, what's happening with these two systems all helped us develop with families better services and supports. There are better ways of doing this. And I think that in 10 years or 20 years, we've learned more. We're going to be smarter and we're going to care more. And because of that, we're going to have healthier communities. On the school side, school psychologists like Angela Mann are pushing for a shift in the way schools treat students, especially students with trauma. So trauma-informed practices, I think, is um, helping educators to really be sensitive to um trauma histories that students might have to instead of kind of this the worldview of needing to control and manage students shifting that worldview to supporting students needs to being responsive to their needs to trying to um, understand what behavior is communicating as opposed to maybe trying to punish the behavior away or punish the need away maybe ignore the need and just try to offer lots of incentives to get the kids to do what you want. Another thing schools are implementing is restorative justice after a student misbehaves. Around 30% of schools practice restorative justice, according to the school survey on crime and safety from the DOE. One of those schools is the Ron Brown Preparatory High School in Washington, D.C. It's a school for black boys. I work as a part of the culture restorative efforts team at Ron Brown. That's Charles Curtis, the school psychologist and restorative justice coordinator. When there's a conflict, we are the ones who help you all navigate. We don't navigate it for you. We don't punish you. We actually help you figure out how that fight y'all just got into was probably stupid. So let's name it stupid. Let's apologize to each other. Let's actually get to the source of it and let's figure out how to not get in this situation again. So the idea is to do more mediation than suspensions, expulsions, or school arrests. Exactly. And that dynamic is totally different than, man, that's crazy. Y'all got in a fight. All right, y'all got to go home for a few days. Hope y'all don't do this no more. There's no skill building there. No one learns how to not do this again. And remember, I'm 14. I'm a kid in a city. What makes you think I'm not going to get in a fight or two? I come, that's not even reasonable. You got to teach me how to navigate my emotions. You have to teach me how to use my words when I'm frustrated or upset. You might have to teach me how to acknowledge frustration. I may not even know that's what I'm feeling. That is a very different dynamic. So accordingly, you are learning very early. You don't get to avoid school. There is no dodging school, but also you aren't punished when you do the wrong thing. My name is Nadal Al-Ghazahi, and this episode was produced by Patrick Linehan. Assistant producers for this episode were Chloe Jones and Kelsey Colasi. News 21 reporters Brody Ford, Kayla Schlebach, Chloe Johnson, Gabby Shimanovska, Jeff Uvino, Kimberly Rapinut, Morgan Wallace, and Deja Henry also contributed to this episode. Kids in Prison is a part of a larger project produced by Carnegie Knight News 21, an investigative journalism program headquartered at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication in Phoenix, Arizona. This episode was also assistant produced by me, Katie Seifer, and mixed and scored by Anthony Wallace. 
on the next episode of Kids Imprisoned. He was yelling, you can't breathe. I know that because all the kids that were there heard him. I should have actually like, jumped in there try helping him. Um, you know what else? It, it's, it was the adult's responsibility to do the right thing. But he's my friend and I, I want to look out for my friend.